You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 88. A big thanks goes out to Ed and Al for choosing to support this podcast on Patreon. You can also support the show by heading on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to find out more information. This is our fifth and final episode on the Brusilov Offensive of summer 1916. We've already covered the build-up, the opening attacks, and then the second round of attacks, and today we will focus on the final set of efforts made by the Russians. As the Eastern Front moved into July 1916, both sides had been hit hard by the earlier attacks, but that did not mean that it was over. Brusilov believed that another effort was more than justified, and continued to push his troops to launch more attacks. We will discuss three separate efforts today. The first will be in the middle of July, and then one two weeks later, near the end of July, and then finally one the first week of August. While these were all separate attacks, they were launched very close together, with just a few days separating the end of one and the beginning of the next. In the middle of all of that, we will talk about the fact that Falkenhayn, and the Germans as a whole, finally got their wish and got command of the entire Eastern Front right before Falkenhayn himself was replaced as German Chief of Staff. We will of course close out this episode by talking about the offensive as a whole, and its impact on the wider world of the war, as well as on all three of the direct participants. We will then end this episode with a bit of a look at Brusilov's legacy in Russia, which would start with this attack, but would then go through the revolutions of 1917 and beyond. The Germans had hoped to launch a big counterattack in the middle of July, primarily with Austrian troops in the middle of the line. However, they never got their chance, and this was because Brusilov was planning an attack of his own. This attack would not be launched before the Germans could launch their own, by some odd chance, but instead because Brusilov had intelligence of the coming counterattack and decided to preempt it. This would be the first time that Brusilov would be launching an attack with a massive numerical superiority on his entire front, 
and this had been made possible by the continued funneling of effort by Russian high command into Brusilov and his men. This included the Guards Army that we discussed last episode, which was theoretically the best offensive weapon in the entirety of the Russian army. Having this advantage caused Brusilov to change his method of attack, partially because he now lacked the men that he had spent so long training during the spring, and partially because he believed that now he had the numbers required to simply batter through the enemy line. Unfortunately, this also meant that he was sort of setting up his new attack in the old Russian style, like what we saw at Lake Narok in the first few episodes. He was still going to attack on a pretty wide front, but gone were the extensive preparations and the intricate and coordinated waves of men and the artillery. This new attack would once again be aimed at Koval, with once again the hope being that he would be able to split the front in two and separate the Germans and the Austrians. I want you to prepare yourself. You're going to hear a lot about attacks against and towards Koval today, to the point where my outline contains the following three headings, the attack against Koval, the attack against Koval again, and the attack against Koval again again. Those Russians just would not know when to quit. The artillery bombardment would begin on July 16th, in preparation for an attack the next day. The Russians now had drastically more artillery than the Germans and Austrians, and some estimates put this advantage at up to 6 to 1. They also had far more men. These two combined meant that when the attack went forward, it met with almost instant success. Quickly, the Austrian 1st Army began to retreat. The Russians soon ran into difficulties, though. They had to cross the Stockhod River on their way forward. And this should not have been a huge obstacle for the army, since the, area in, since the river in this area was shallow and slow. But they did not account for the fact that the slowness of the river created large marshes on either side, which made any movement almost impossible. In many places, men could only advance single file, and the guns were pretty much stuck. Even with these difficulties, the attack would continue. On the Austrian side, the situation was looking grim. The attack took 12,000 prisoners right at the start, and the Hungarian Landsturm Regiment simply panicked and broke right in the middle of the line. As they continued their frantic retreat, they pulled the rest of the line with them. This retreat did not stop until they were 8 kilometers to the rear. Linsingen was forced to move German reinforcements into the area to try and stem the tide. He sent a full division plus three extra regiments, and as soon as this was ordered, he requested more troops from Falkenhayn, a request that was denied for the moment. During conversations, both the German commanders believed that the Austrians were pretty much worthless at this point, but Falkenhayn stood firm on his refusal to send more troops. It was in this area that the German and Austrian troops began to be mixed together down to the company level as Linsingen tried to find a way to steady the Austrian troops under his command. This would wind up being successful. The Russians tried another large attack in this area around Stockhod on the 20th of July, but it was stopped by the defenders. A big reason for this was apparently the fact that while the attack went forward in the early morning at around 2 a.m., they were illuminated by a full moon. Just random things like that can sometimes cause problems. With this attack halted, the commander of the Russian 11th Army decided to change the emphasis of his attack to the south of the previous efforts. Here, he would hit the Austrian 2nd Army, 
and attempt to capture the city of Brody. It took three days for the supplies and men to move to the south to prepare, but when they attacked, they once again met with success. This attack was launched at 4 p.m. on July the 27th, and 12 hours later, Brody had been taken, along with 13,000 prisoners and mountains of ammunition. This unhinged almost the entire Austrian Second Army, and the entire army was forced back 20 kilometers before they reached an area with defensible positions. In some areas, this retreat was not even required. Instead, the Austrian commanders simply did not trust their troops to hold the line, so decided to move before the Russians forced them to. This caused the Austrian leaders to even go so far as to prepare to evacuate Limburg, which was another 30 kilometers behind the front. And just to illustrate how extremely cautious they were being, Limburg, at 30 kilometers behind the front, was further from the fighting than the original fighting lines were from the current ones back in May. The Russians had taken two months to advance this far, but the Austrian generals were afraid that they would double that very soon. The lack of faith in the Austrian soldier was a sentiment shared among the Austrian commanders and the Germans as well, but it didn't stop there. The Russians were noticing it as well. The official reports of the Russian 11th Army does not even really praise the Russian troops for this recent success, instead claiming that the Austrian ineptitude was the reason for it. Here's a quote. Quote, The third phase of general operations for the 11th Army ended with the taking of Brody. Completing this operation required three bloody days of fighting on both sides. Despite the outstanding work of the artillery and the unceasing forward pressure of the troops, the enemy never provided persistent opposition, which was recognized by many brave, combat-proven participants of this battle. The Austrian army was also beginning to get a considerable amount of pressure from the Austrian politicians back in Vienna. One report from the foreign minister accused Conrad of being out of touch and irresponsible, but the harshest criticism always came from the Hungarians. One Hungarian representative would openly blame the Austrian military leadership for the current situation, and a whole group of Austrian political leaders began to advocate for a unified leadership team from the Eastern Front, of course, under German control. They were proposing that Hindenburg be given the command of the entire Eastern Front, with Archduke Friedrich being given a high-ranking position on his staff. This would have included the further mixing of German and Austro-Hungarian troops, since just the presence of German troops often created better results. Things seemed to be going exactly to German plan, as we discussed last episode, with their slow growing of control in the East. With members of the Austro-Hungarian government now actively trying to replace Conrad, Falkenhayn simply was not going to let the situation slide by without taking action. However, he was very carefully stepping through a minefield here, because he absolutely did not want Hindenburg being given command of the entire Eastern Front. This was because of the strained relationship that Hindenburg and Falkenhayn had since Falkenhayn took over command, but also because Falkenhayn feared that if Hindenburg was given so much power, it would be easy for him to push to have Falkenhayn replaced completely. Falkenhayn tried to find another solution to prevent having to give Hindenburg the entire front, 
but with both the German and Austrian governments against him, it was simply impossible. Therefore, the eventual solution was to give the German high command overall command of the entire Eastern Front, with Hindenburg in command of everything, from the Baltic to the Dniester. This helped the front in a few ways. The first was that it simply made the Germans responsible for everything, and gave them much higher stakes in the game. This ended any conversations about not giving the front German resources. It also increased the communication and coordination between the armies along the front, letting them be more flexible with their resources and reserves. The agreement also brought with it more German reinforcements from the north, now that they were not being hoarded by Hindenburg and Ludendorff. One final thing that it did was put Hindenburg and Ludendorff in a position to take credit for stopping the Brusilov offensive, even though I'm not convinced that they really had much of a part in it. As we discussed the last two major Russian efforts, it seems clear to me that by the time the dynamic duo of Hindenburg and Ludendorff took over the front, most of the Russian ability to do anything other than maybe push the front a little bit was in the past. So really, they're just stepping in at the perfect time to take credit for it. The next Russian attack would not take place near Koval. Instead, it would once again take place in the south. On the 28th of July, the guns would begin firing, and they would include a good number of shells filled with gas. When the attackers went forward at 11 a.m., they quickly pushed through the first line. The Austrian 7th Army once again took the brunt of the attack, and there was a good amount of retreating, but it was nothing like the situation of a week earlier. There were also attacks towards Koval, and this attack would finally utilize the Guards' Army. The goal was to push the Austrians finally and completely beyond the Stockhod River, and then carry forward the attack from there. To do this, the Russians would unleash 250,000 men against just 115,000 defenders. They would still have to deal with the problems of the marshy ground, but this was something that would also affect the defenders. The geography in this area prevented the Austrians and Germans from being able to dig proper defensive positions, and this generally left them quite exposed to incoming fire. When the Russian guards went forward, they did so in dense masses, with some reports of them moving in formations up to 20 men deep. This tactic initially met with some success, with the Germans and Austrians forced to abandon their front lines. However, against these tactics, the defenders quickly regained their composure and began to cause huge casualties. Wave after densely packed wave of Russians came forward, and they were mown down by German and Austrian artillery fire. There was still some concern that these tactics would eventually push through, though, just on the fact of sheer numbers, especially against the primarily Austrian defenders. But this is when the effects of having the Germans in command began to be felt. By the end of July, just a few days after the attack had begun, German troops were being put into the line in the threatened sectors. German regiments were sent to all of the Austrian divisions, and larger German formations were sent to the hardest-hit positions. A large number of Austrian commanders were also replaced in front of Koval with Germans at almost every command post down to the battalion. There was generally just a sense among many of the remaining Austrians that finally the cavalry had arrived, and everything was going to be okay. It is somewhat amazing 
Reading some of the Austrian officers' accounts about how much the arrival of Germans in force to any given location changed their outlook on the situation. This transition of troops was assisted by the fact that the Russians did not launch any large efforts during the last days of July. There were numerous smaller-scale attacks on localized fronts, but they were generally poorly planned, poorly supported, and poorly executed, and just caused the guards more casualties. The delay in launching another large effort, and instead using these wasteful smaller attacks, allowed the defenders to once again catch their breath, adjust to new commanders and new positions, and bring in much-needed reinforcements. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Confidence and resources grew so rapidly in the last few days of July that the Germans started to plan another counterattack. The plan was for the attack to be launched on the 3rd of August, only it would not be utilizing the troops in front of Koval, instead it would be in the south. This would involve the 7th Army, with the goal of pushing the Russians back out of the Carpathians and allowing the Austrians to shorten their lines. When the attack was launched, it did not quite go as planned. The Russians had fortified their positions in a few key locations, and it made it very difficult for any headway to be made by the Austrians. So in some areas, the Russians were pushed back, but not in the most important areas. The biggest problem was that while the situation in the north had solidified and some troops had been sent south for this new effort, there was just not enough manpower to pull off anything really important, especially when it became clear that the Russians were about to attack again in the north. Brusilov had used the first week of August to regroup his troops and prepare for his next effort. He was now under quite a bit of pressure from Alexiev to produce more results with all the resources that he had, and to really start capturing things instead of just pushing back the front. Because of this pressure, and his belief in the fact that the enemy was about to break, Brusilov altered his orders to his army commanders. Once again, he instructed them to narrow their fronts of attack so that they could achieve absolute superiority in their sectors. This was sort of just another step towards a narrower front which he had begun with his last attack, and which had been unsuccessful. 
with the doubling down on the approach of a narrower front. When the guard's army went forward again, it would be on a front of just 15 kilometers, a far cry from the 30 kilometer or more that Brusilov was using in June. On that 15-kilometer front, they now had four times as many troops as the Austrians and Germans, and this time, both the 8th Army and the Guards Army would be used in the attack. Right before the attack went forward, the Austrian attack in the south that we just discussed was launched. And while this did not greatly move the front, it did cause the commander of the Russian 9th Army to start calling for reinforcements. And when this was denied by Brusilov, he escalated his concerns all the way up to Alexiev, who ordered Brusilov to send reinforcements south, even if it meant weakening the upcoming attack. Brusilov was also forced to delay the attack due to trying to move those men out of the line, and so it did not go forward until several days later than planned, on August 7th. So, while that attack in the south didn't really push the line at all, it did help in the north. The troops that Brusilov sent south would be used to launch a counterattack against the Austrian 3rd Army on the north side of the Dniester River. The Austrians, for the lack of a better word, disintegrated. The troops retreated so fast that they got mixed up with the reserves behind the front and reinforcements trying to move forward, and chaos reigned. However, to the north of the 3rd Army, the line held just fine. The units to the north would be forced to retreat when night fell, but unlike the troops to their south, it was a nice, orderly business. The next day the fighting continued, but this time there was not any panic, instead just a voluntary withdrawal on a wide front. This made the Russians, the tired Russians who had now had been fighting and marching for days, continue to move further and further into Austrian territory. As the front deepened, the southern Russian army simply ran out of men and energy to continue forward, and so the attack stopped. Brusilov would try to jumpstart the situation again by sending another division from his reserve in front of Koval, but they did not arrive in time and could not outweigh the exhaustion of the rest of the troops. It was actually during this attack that the deepest penetration of the entire year would occur for the Russians with some units taking up positions inside of Hungarian territory, not that it really meant much beyond the propaganda victory. More Russian reinforcements could have been sent to the south, a whole lot more, if Brusilov wanted to, but those were currently en route to Koval, and it was there that the last large effort of the Brusilov offensive would be focused. Of course, it all came down to Koval, of course, and this effort, other than the narrowing of the front, would look a lot like the others that had come before it. This time when they went forward, the Russians found not a disorganized defense, but instead one that was ready and waiting for them. Everywhere that the men went forward, they were shredded by defensive machine gun and artillery fire. They were not assisted by the swampy terrain that slowed them down and limited where they could move. On the first day of the attacks, they continued for 12 hours with no result, other than the fact that 20% of what was left of the guard's army became a casualty. The next day, the same thing happened. Brusilov would have to call a halt to any further attempts. On August the 15th, both the northern and southern attacks had died down. The guard's army had lost more than 54,000 men during the attacks since the middle of July. The attempts to take Koval did not end in August, but generally everything after this point is not considered part of the Brusilov Offensive. 
mostly because due to a shifting in command structures, uh, Evert would be the one commanding the troops. Over the next two months, though, over 17 attacks would be launched, finally petering out in November. None of these were large, and honestly, none of them had a really great chance of changing the situation. Because after August the 8th, the German and Austrian troops in front of Koval were just too well prepared and too strong and too ready. Because this isn't considered part of the Brusilov Offensive, really anything after about August the 15th, it, the Brusilov Offensive in total lasted two and a half months. And now we're at the end of it. It's over. The casualty numbers for the Brusilov Offensive were staggering. The Austro-Hungarian army lost around a million men as casualties between June and August, and the Russians lost half of that. The worst part for the Austrians was that half of their casualties, half of that million, were prisoners, pointing to a serious problem with morale and resiliency among their troops, a very worrying trend that unfortunately would not stop. These massive surrenders give us some pretty interesting statistics for the battle. For example, during four days in June, the Austrian 4th Army went from 120,000 men down to just 36,000. And of those 84,000 casualties, 76,000 were taken prisoner. This is just a staggering percentage. The larger outcome for the defenders was that the Austrian army essentially ceased to exist. The Germans had basically been given the keys to their allies' army starting in late July, and escalating over the next few months. However, while the growth in German power showed that the Austrian leadership was seriously deficient, it was probably a good thing for the average Austrian soldier. Their leaders had proven that they were incapable of effectively organizing and commanding a defense against strong Russian pressure. With the Germans in charge, and German artillery behind them, and German machine guns spread along the front, and German leadership teams in charge of things, the situation was generally much better for the average soldier. The rapid decline in Austrian prestige was a stad end to a once great and storied empire. It had essentially been demoted from a great power to a German client state, a larger Bavaria. Conrad would write around this time that, quote, if the Allies win, we are lost. If Germany wins, we are lost. And in this case, his words could not have been more correct. Austria-Hungary, as an independent state, was dead, and it would never rise again. On the Russian side, August 1916 represented a high point, maybe the high point of the war. It was, however, dampened in September and October, when the Romanians, who had only recently entered the war, were almost completely wiped off the map as soon as the Germans began to attack, something we will discuss in later episodes. And even though the Brusilov Offensive was a large-scale success, it did cause problems for the Russians looking forward. Most of the units south of the Pripyat marshes found themselves about 50% strength by September, and all told, the Russians would need 300,000 more men for their offensive plans in 1917. And, and oh yeah, that's not 300,000 men total. That's 300,000 men per month. Per month, 300,000 for six months or more. 
even the seemingly infinite manpower pools of Russia were starting to look a bit too shallow for the task ahead. There was also growing unrest in both the army and at home, and that war weariness was about to explode. There were even several Russian units who would mutiny towards the end of 1916. This was kept under control, if barely, by the Russian commanders in the field, and it was hoped that a quiet winter was just what the doctor ordered for the Russian army, and it was hoped that by spring everything would be okay again. When Brusilov looked back at the war, he was a bit more negative on what his attacks had accomplished than maybe I've been during these episodes, saying that, quote, these operations brought no strategic results. The Southwestern Front did everything that it could in line with the possibilities. It was not in a position to do more. I at least could do no more. Perhaps in my place, a military genius like Julius Caesar or Napoleon could have realized more, but I had no such ambitions, and I could not have had them. End quote. He had certainly been successful, but he'd not really won anything. Maybe if Evert had been more proactive in the north during June, or maybe if the Austrians had been more successful in Italy, making it more difficult to pull troops back, maybe something better could have resulted. But it didn't. Even though he could not claim a great victory, Brusilov had already taken his place in Russian history. Western historians often called the Brusilov Offensive the greatest Russian achievement of the war. However, Brusilov's role in pushing the Russian army to the brink of breaking could not be ignored. Brusilov would be put in charge of the army for at least a little while in 1917, but even with his great name, the damage was done, and the army would end up playing a leading role in the revolutions of 1917. The Soviet military would rise from the ashes of revolution in 1918, and they would also regard Brusilov as the greatest Russian commander of the war. They would credit him as the founder of modern combined arms doctrine because of his work trying to weld the infantry, artillery, and aircraft into one cohesive unit. Many of his staff would go on to play leading roles in the Red Army. Nothing can take away the fact that Brusilov presided over the height of Russian wartime achievement. He had done what few of his contemporaries thought was even possible. He had launched a large Russian offensive that was not a complete failure. And even if the offensive moved the Russian nation towards what came after, the mutinies, the revolutions, the civil war, those probably would have happened anyway. <laughs> 